Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. It is a wonderful post-Thanksgiving week, and there is nobody better to share it with than the people in baseball, football, basketball, a whole lot of things going on this week in a trillion-dollar sports business. Dan Calaruso, the global editor of Reuters and an inspiration to me now and forever. How are you? I'm doing fine. I am enjoying, as you said, the uh, the, uh, the meeting of all these different sports going on right now. There's football, which is finally getting interesting. There's baseball, hot stove league, and there's basketball and hockey in full swing. And it's a, it's a, it's been a good season. I'm not a huge college football fan, but that's at a time time of the year that it matters. So. Um, it's, it, things are good in the sports world. We'll talk, we'll, we'll talk about that next week, and we have a couple of surprise guests on that one. But I, I found it really – I digress. Let me just do this for a second. All the airwaves are focusing on college football pundits picking who they would send to the playoffs if it were today. Well, it ain't today. I mean, there's a, they're, they're all playing each other this next weekend. So, as you would say, they're all gassing on about who's going, and it's all irrelevant. What's Indeed you? they are. But you have to guess on a lot to fill all those live TV hours. Yeah, well, that's you know, true. You have to, unfortunately. That's true. Well, let's talk baseball for a second. So it is the Otani sweepstakes. Everybody wants to buy maybe the best player in the history of Japan, and there are rules, there are transfer rules, there are franchise rules, and, and we're just close to the edge, and we're kind of redefining it as we go along. What, what's your call on all this? It's fascinating. He, Shohai Otani is a six-tool player. That sixth tool is he's a pitcher. He's Babe Ruth coming back to life. And he wants to pitch and play the field in the major leagues. Um, the cool thing is he's 23 years old. He's leaving Japan two years early, um, two years before he can get a max, a, a max contract in Major League Baseball. So teams are going to have to pay, what, $20 million to his team in Japan. But they can't really pay it. They don't really have to pay him that much. Um, the biggest bonus he can get is $3.5 million from a handful of teams. So... He's coming over at a discount. He's a unicorn of a baseball player um, and potentially the best Japanese player to ever come over, youngest, most potential, and he's laying out this challenge to himself. And, you know, you, you, it's hard to find an athlete who we don't characterize as greedy um, these days, and Otani fits the mold. It's going to be really interesting to see who, who bids, who gets him. Now, you, 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 you called Alibaba a year before it happened. You've done some marvelous things on our air, but who gets no, we them? we don't. Who gets um, them? Who gets them? Yeah. Um, the Texas Rangers. Wow. Interesting. The Texas um, Rangers. Following he, in the you, you Darvish, <laughs> and you know, not so fast with you, uh, at least recently. Following so, Darvish, but they could afford to pay him the $3.5 million bonus. They're one of two teams that can afford to pay him that. They're not that can afford, but they're allowed to pay him that. The Rangers and the Yankees. Not a lot of pressure going to the Rangers. A contending team. Uh, an overall a franchise that's pretty stable. Um, and, they, and they're you know always, lately, at least in the last six, seven years, they've been in the mix. Um, it's a good team. It's a good franchise. It's a nice second-tier market for him to grow in without mind-bending pressure. Uh, and I think, I think that's where he's going to go. How about the Cubs at Wrigley Field? Can't pay him. Too big. Yeah. Can't well, I don't pay think him. he's interested in money either, but 
His yeah. agents will be. A, a six-tool guy not interested in money. Where, where, you know, where, where, where can we find one of those guys? So, so interesting comment. Uh, let's go back to um, what, what is probably the enigma today of uh, what's happened with ESPN and some of the networks. And as we all evolve, social media, all of the new platforms, you know, and they're all very interesting, obviously. But the bottom line of all of it is that you have to figure out what's going to happen. And so where is it all going as far as ESPN? They've looked at fantasy to help them bail out, just like um, uh, they, uh, um, you know, you're, you're, you had a kind of a really good ish, ish issue with, with what ABC did with the, with the Bachelorette fantasy and 75% women uh, uh, viewers on that. I stole your thunder a little bit. But I found the whole world of this really interesting. Where's it going? Well, here's the thing. This is to, to give credit where credit is due. Axios uh, Media Newsletter had a really interesting item uh, this morning on ESPN Fantasy and how it accounted for 53% of all minutes consumed across ESPN digital platforms on NFL Sundays. That's amazing. As a digital media executive, that is an amazing level of engagement, um, and it's amazing focus on one, le- one portion of a platform. So it tells you one thing, that live sports... It, it was a point three years ago when we said live sports was the winner, right? Because it was a live event. You couldn't watch it on demand. It didn't have the same value. Well, yes, but now take that a step further, and your audience actually has to engage with the live event in some way, shape, or form, whether it's fantasy, whether it's voting. It goes back to the old model of, uh, of um, like, Star Search or, or um, American Idol, right? You're voting, you're participating at home. There's some participation level and there's a deeper engagement that that needs to happen for media to really leverage the digital platforms. And the problem is they have to do that because the ad dollars aren't as big. So they have to get more of them. You know, they have to get more impressions and drive more traffic and do all those things because, again, the ad dollars are programmatic. They're not big TV buys. They're still digital quarters now instead of digital dimes compared to analog dollars. So the issue has to be how do you get people to truly engage with a live event? Well, did, fantasy is a slam dunk for ESPN. Can they, make, can they replicate that in other sports? And interestingly, it's, can its parent company replicate that across entertainment, news, and all of its other platforms? Yeah, and that, that's the interesting piece of this as well because at the end of the day, the rights fees are humongous. We've got other bidders, as we've talked about before, the Facebooks and Snapchats and, and, and Yahoos uh, entering into that world. They may be more and better equipped to deal with interactivity and fantasy. So, again, it may cry out for partnerships before the bidding process even begins in some of these major leagues. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, when, when you look at Snapchat and you look at some of the other, those other platforms, sharing is their engagement, right? Um, but when you look at um, what ABC did and Disney did in some of its acquisitions recently of the former MLB.com, right, that platform. They, they put an, another chunk of money into that. That's a huge deal because that makes you, it brings you up the curve digitally and it brings you someplace where people are already engaging. You don't have to create a new audience. So the whole thing cries out for sports being the, the tip of the spear on this digital evolution, going beyond news and beyond live events to actual hardcore engagement with stakes and consequences for the person on the other end. Well, to and, me, and it's fascinating. And the other piece of this, which is important, is that it's not just the live event either, but it's the hoopla surrounding it. And no better weekend for that than the CFP playoff. We led with that and how it doesn't mean anything until the actual playing and the votes. But college football these weeks are dominating. And for some teams, 
it's great. For some, Florida, Jim McElwain out, Dan Mullen in, Nebraska, Mike Riley out, Trent Bray in uh, interim. You got Jim Mora fired, but look at it, $12 million the university just to go away. Remind me to get fired like that someday. Well, you know, you can be fired. They ain't paying you $12 million. <laughs> The decimal point may be somewhere a little farther left, right? You and Chip Kelly, by the way, who, as far as I could tell, flamed out in Philly, flamed out in San Francisco. He agrees to a five-year, $23 million deal with a $9 million reciprocal buyout for UCLA. Is too much too much, or is this the beginning of an even larger trend? Well, look, you're the, you're the economist, right? You understand this. Is What's the value of a college football coach who keeps the alumni, the fan base, and the conference networks or whatever economics underlie those, what's the value of of someone who keeps them engaged? Chip Kelly was great at what, Oregon? Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, He was great there. He flopped in the NFL. Um, He's coming back to UCLA, which is uh, like an NFL franchise. Um, What is just the interest of having him, and if he pulls in three or four good seasons, you know, does he have to have the best team in the nation for it to pay off for UCLA? Probably not. Um, so I think they're working at a different payoff than the fans are. So, yeah, I could say too much is too much, but obviously the league, the, the, the league, I call it a league, there, there's a, a Freudian slip. The, the, the schools have a deep, profound financial interest in making these people the highest paid employees of their organization. And it is interesting. A, a, a shameless tease. We just finished his interview. We'll run it sometime in the next month. But Larry Scott, the commissioner of the Big Twelve, uh, the Pac-12, he calls the football program the front porch of the college, which is kind of an interesting dynamic where you can attract a chemistry professor even if he wins a Nobel Prize, but there aren't a whole lot of fans that are going to line up on the main street to celebrate that uh, Nobel pr- uh, Prize winner. They should, but they don't. Well, they really should, should. Um, should. and increasingly they should. Um, But you're right, and it's a front porch, it's marketing, um, it's a lot of things. And and that's how we have to look at it. I mean, it's easy for fans to sit back and say, you know, in in four years, Chip Kelly ripped off UCLA because he only made it to two bowl games in four years. But you know what? To UCLA, they're playing a different game um, than the fans, than the media, uh, than a lot of people. And that's why I like talking to you about this, because kind of you understand that other game going on. Um, and that front porch analogy is great. I've been looking high and low, and I can't find somebody to pay me $12 million to go away. Certainly you can't either. So, you know, when you find them, you know, do it. And then if you find a second one, here we go. Uh, focus on golf for a minute, and then we'll introduce our guest. Look, Don't look now, but Tiger Woods says he's healthy. He comes back in the Hero World Challenge. It's his tournament. It's in the Bahamas. And everybody excited about it, the industry eagerly awaiting Tiger's return to golf, players are saying he doesn't move the needle. He is the needle. What do you think of him? I think Tiger Woods has a great chance to be the Jimmy Connors story. Remember, like, the last, the, the comebacks of Jimmy oh, yeah, Connors? Of course. And how, fa- and how, you know, the U.S. Open was on its feet for, you know, a week with Jimmy Connors. Uh, I feel like that's Tiger Woods' chance. Now, he's not going to be the Tiger we remember. But he has the flashes. He has the skills. Obviously, he's Tiger Woods. Um, say what you want about him as a human being. We're all flawed human beings. Um, it'll be very interesting to see if he could give the give the sport a little bit of that kickstart, right? I mean, the, the PGA does need a kickstart. Am I wrong? Yeah. No. It's you know what the the interesting thing about all of this is that Angel Illigan, who is the CEO of Bridgestone, Tiger just signed a deal with him, basically said that Tiger didn't have to play golf anymore 
and Bridgestone still gets its money worth, which I find that to be incredible. And obviously, everybody watching, winning or not winning, but just being around the game has caused a significant inhale and some relief. Molly Solomon, the newly minted executive producer of the Golf Channel, she's been there for a while, covered a number of Olympics for NBC, covered a lot of different things, but she talks about Tiger, the impact on golf, where golf needs to go. Molly Solomon. Obviously bullish on the business of golf and bullish on the Golf Channel. The numbers and metrics say that since you were involved with the NBC Sports Group in 2011, there's a maybe a direct correlation, but viewership in the Golf Channel is up 60%. Obviously, golf generally and Golf Channel specifically, healthy business. It is, it is, and you know when I when I came down to Orlando um, to to work as the executive producer, I, I came at such a great time, right? 2013, I, I finished uh, the 2012 Olympics in London, so came down the fall of 12, and in 2013, Tiger Woods won five times that year. So I will credit a lot of this to Tiger Woods, but also, um, you know, we just live golf tournaments as possible and do storytelling and build stars through those platforms. So over the years, you know, we've creased, increased our live viewership um, a lot because we put on more tournaments from around the world and the game of golf and professional golf is growing. So we've done that, but we've also looked at kind of untilled uh, earth in like the NCAA championships and college golf, the world long drive um, tour, places like that. So there's a lot of golf that wasn't televised that was really, really good events. And so we've, we've looked under all corners and we found a lot of compelling stuff. And, you know, we're trying to fill the calendar with live sporting events. I mean, that's what, you know, uh, networks um, really look for to capture people because there's so much good content, um, you know, SVOD everywhere else. But live events is where it's at, and that's what we're trying to do. We all understand that uh, as veterans of the business that live events carry the day. It's the ultimate reality, television. But the the Ebersolian Mark Lazarus school of effective storytelling can kind of mm-hmm. percolate down. I, I agree. And the thing is, we show events, you know, on Golf Channel from around the world. So really the onus falls on us to to make you care about so many international golfers because I don't think there's any sport in the world that's more international on a week-to-week basis across all tours than, than golf. And so, um, you know, we have a research unit that's dedicated. You should see the notes we put out every single single week on every single tour with all the biographies of all the golfers and really we charge you know our announcers with tell us stories tell us who they are and make me care and um, I think it's working I think they're doing a terrific job well one personal experience the new tournament uh, that was sponsored by the Guggenheim Life folks in Indianapolis and Dan Towers who is involved Mm -hmm. in it were you know, very excited as opposed to some of the early days where there are clearly LPGA challenges about uh, candidly, you know, uh, um, uh, telling the players apart and trying to figure it out. And the key has been successful storytelling. Again, another feather in, uh, in the Golf Channel's cap. Yes, and, you know, give the LPGA credit, too, because they have really, you know, worked with their players on, you know, telling their own story. What's your personal brand? Tell us about it. A lot of the Asian players speak excellent English, so they can tell their own story, but equally so on a week-to-week basis. I mean, I would I would put our LPGA announce team up against anybody in sports in terms of what they do week-to-week to tell you more about these um, these players and where they come from and what their story is. How do you help? I know it's it's up to the individual tours and organizations to get more kids, get more women, 
uh, get more non-golfers, get more avid golfers. But but do you do you work directly or indirectly or both with those organizations to try to promote the game and get more people interested in playing? You know, growing the game is really, it's its one of our company goals, right? Because when you think about it, if we're not going to start working on sustainability and making sure that this next generation is interested in golf, the business of golf goes away for a whole lot of us. So ever, I, I've, I've seen the commitment amongst the tours, the governing bodies, and Golf Channel just, there's one thing we're working on really well together, and that's growing the game. And I think the, the uh, terrific example is what Billy Payne and, um, the PGA of America and the USGA have done behind drive, chip, and putt, which is, you know, it's really a year-long qualifying process to get kids to try out and make the national finals um, at Augusta National the Sunday before the Masters. But in the meantime, you're learning to drive, chip, and putt. It's fun to do. And so we've really tried to raise the awareness. And if you look at sports participation numbers over the last few years, girls in golf is the fastest-growing segment in sports participation. So I think we're doing we're doing something right as a collective group, but there's always more to more to do. And also, you know, thinking about golf in a different way. Golf doesn't have to be a traditional 18 holes to define it as a sport. And so what you see, like with Top Golf and Entertainment Golf coming of age, you know, somebody that goes and plays Top Golf on a Friday night is a golfer. Um, my my daughter and I go out every Saturday afternoon and we walk and we play nine holes. We don't need to play 18 holes, but nine holes fits so much better in our busy schedules and we can take our golf uh, we can take our cell phones out on the course and that's all okay so it's about breaking old rules down and making it fit into modern life and so um, I, I feel like the entire sport is is really committed to growing the game and as iconic golden bear becomes uh, olden bear and as others who have been purists understand growing the game means the 15 inch cup and the tee it forward and the Frisbee golf. How do you feel about maintaining the balance between the purist who wants to remember golf as it used to be and those who are interested in golf as it might be? I think there's room in the tent for everybody, right? When you go out, for example, you know, my kids and I are deciding what to do next week um, while we have vacation, and there's going to be different forms of golf um, every single day, but it doesn't have to be traditional. But in the end, we are going to go play 18 holes, and we're going to record a score, and we're going to get it, you know, it's going to contribute to our handicap. I think you just have to have it all in balance, and ultimately if the professional tours are going to to stick with an 18-hole round with the same the same size cup and everything, that's okay. But I, I think we'd be shooting ourselves in the foot if we weren't open to trying new things and having people enjoy golf in a more modern way. Tiger's coming back. Tiger Hero World Challenge is one of the pegs to this. And, you know, it's, it's oversimplification to say in 1999 and beyond, <laughs> Tiger changed the game and the Pied Piper and certainly brought more people interested in the golf. He still moves the needle. The old tigerization of the tour isn't as important as it uh, today as it is as it was then. What's your take on? First of all, I'm not going to ask you as a doctor to prognosticate Tiger's <laughs> health, but but you know what's what is what's the future of of, of Tiger long tour and the term and the impact of him on the game. 
what's interesting to all of us in the last few weeks since he announced he was coming back, and it was very, it was unexpected, I think, for all of us. It was kind of like a holiday surprise in December to have him come back, and I can talk about that. But what we, we find, because we deal with, you know, players on, on a daily basis, is how much he's impacted Justin Thomas, Ricky Fowler, Jordan Spieth. Like, their, their desire, their commitment, all these things are all emanate from watching Tiger growing up. So what I've always wanted, what I've wanted to see over the last two years, as you've seen all those young players win big tournaments, even win majors, gosh, you just think, wouldn't it have been great to see Tiger compete against these young kids because their, their competitiveness and everything else stemmed from what they saw. So I would have loved to see him in his prime compete against them. And, you know, he's going to be 42, I believe, on December 30th. So we, it, I'm not sure we're ever going to get that, but, you know, something in me, the sports fan wishes that we'd get him one more time for a really, you know, a, a good long year or two and, and see what he could bring back. To see him win one more time on tour, I think would be absolutely thrilling. But this, in my mind, from what I've read, and I'm not a doctor either, is this is the last comeback. You know, when you have spine fusion surgery, this is the last time you get to try to do this. If this doesn't work, you know, he's, he's probably going to become a, a full-time dad again. But, um, you know, he moves the needle. He is the needle, as uh, John Hawkins used to say with Golf World. And, you know, he's going he's gonna to increase our ratings by 40% by just being there. So, um, you know, as, as a TV producer, I'm excited about that. But as a sports fan, I'm really excited just to see him play. And, you know, you really hope it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a positive um, in a couple weeks' time. Don't look now, but you know between Ricky Fowler and Dustin and Dustin Johnson and and uh, and and uh, and Justin Thomas, sh- shameless plug, two out of those three, I'm, I'm kind of in the house between them. And, and I've got to tell you, they uh, the 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 the, the, uh, uh, the trash talking and the friendliness and the rivalry of the young guns on the tour is going to be great for golf for years, don't you think? I do, and it's so different from the Tiger era, you know, kind of connecting the dots. The Tiger era was an era of intimidation and domination, and this is a different, more collegial, dare we say, millennial sort of competitiveness, right? They grew up, and I think I think the difference is they really did grow up on the AJGA, on the junior, on the college circuit together, so they are good friends, but they do want to beat each other's brains in, but they are there to shake their hand or hug them at the end of the round or at the end of the tournament, and it's it's unique, and it's it's so um, inclusive, right? You want to be part of their friend group because they share it with you on social. So they've really given us something to build on. And the fact they have been really, really consistent, all of them over the last two years, it's such a great harbinger for the PGA Tour. Well, and the Golf Channel helps because obviously they they do this and and they know that it's going to be carried right and with great taste. Um, Let's shift gears for a couple of minutes because when you think Olympics, uh, I think of Molly Solomon. Hopefully other people do too. So, So, you know, we started in 92 as a, as a researcher, but then in 08 in Beijing and the 500 hours and then London and Vancouver. So you certainly have had your experience in Olympic programming. You know, first of all, what is the future of Olympic programming broadly defined, especially since uh, 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 certainly three of the Olympics in the future and, you know, previously have been in not just different time zones, but far off parts of the world? 
They have. And what's been remarkable is watching, you know, we started with, I think it was 170 hours in Atlanta when we were live, and it was on one network, and now they'll be across the networks of NBC. And every single minute that's, um, that's contested in um, South Korea will also be streamed. So really, we've emptied the buckets. NBC Universal has figured out how to show you everything. So as a fan experience, it's just, it's tremendous. And it, it's the, it really is the last bastion that brings the family together to watch the Olympics. It's so water cooler. And what I think is going to be really amazing, it started to kind of unfurl in 2016 with social media. But social media now, um, I don't want to say dominates our life, but it's a part of our, it's a part of our daily life now, even more so than in 16. So I, I'll find it very, very curious to see how um, America reacts to, to the Olympics and the highlights and the storytelling on social as well, because you can really get anything you want, anytime, and interact with athletes um, there as well. So this is, to me, it's going to be a social Olympics. Yeah, and the other thing about the long-term Olympic process, too, and, you know, Scott Blackman likes this and others from the USOC <laughs> and otherwise, but um, what, what, how, does, how does the network feel about the broad stability, um, you know, not only of having summer mm -hmm. and winter Olympics pretty much committed through 2028, which has never been done before, but second, that the one that's committed last is in uh, our country. Good, good stuff for everybody. Imagine a planning process where you don't know where the biggest sporting event on earth is going to be until seven years before. And seven years may sound to your listeners as a long time, but it's really not. So the ability for all of us to to be thinking about Paris in 2024. So every year the Golf Channel, when we go do the Ryder Cup next year, is going to be on the same golf course that the Olympics is in 2024. It helps us to be more prepared. Every year we go to the French Open, not in tennis, but in golf, and they played on that golf course. And that helps us with planning. And the same thing with NBC, the ability to think about LA um, in 2028 and plan um, as a business unit, you know, as a corporation, it's, it's just invaluable. So we're really excited, but we're not looking past 2020, Rick, and the, uh, the Tokyo Olympics. Wow, you sound like every football player that ever existed that talks about a game <laughs> two weeks from now with a game one week from now. You got the plan down, Pat. Couple quick ones. 1992, you're a researcher for the Barcelona Olympics. Did you ever think Molly Solomon would be where she is today? In 1992, I didn't know anything about golf. So the fact, and I never played as a kid, but a year after the Barcelona Olympics, when I was assigned to be the graphics production associate and do stats on golf, I had to study everything. I remember going to the 1993 Bob Hope Classic, and I fell in love with the sport. The next week, I went to a golf school and learned to play. I met my husband at the 1994 Solheim Cup. So many things. It's just a, it's a measure that you don't know which direction your life's going to go. If you would have told me I was going to work at Golf Channel when I was 23, I would have laughed at you. My final question. So the lady graduates magna cum laude from Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service in 1990. <laughs> um, what's harder, sports or politics? Gosh, you know, I, I remember thinking about this after I left Georgetown, that everything I learned, you know, uh, superficially looked like it all went away when the, when the wall fell. But, um, you know, that's why getting into the Olympics made too much sense, right? I understood the world. I understood so many, uh, you know, different countries, their politics, their governments. And it really actually helped me in the Olympics. Because the Olympics, as you know, it's about politics, government, culture, and, oh, yeah, sports fits in. So that all made sense. But I remember my dad saying, 
saying, you got to take the foreign service exam. I paid for four years of this. And I said, uh-uh, I'm going to work in sports television. Well, listen, you made the right decision. The Olympics are better for it, and certainly golf is better for it. Molly Solomon, uh, EVP of content and everything else at the Golf Channel. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. The producer, Alex Cohn. Associate producers, Freddie Joyner and Ryan Warner. Assistance provided by Carlos Swadek, Tanner Simpkins, and Ronnie Sokatch, and the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Calaruso. I'm Rick Haro. Thanks again for listening. See you next time on Keeping Score.